welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today I'm here with Elliot Burford. We are here today at Google Creative Lab, so uh, I always let the people kind of give their own introductions. I don't like to drag people through their LinkedIn or whatever. I kind of just, you know, what you're doing here today, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, at the Creative Lab, I'm, uh, there's going to be too many, I'm going to say the word creative way too much here, but okay. I'm at the Google it's, Creative it's the Lab. show title, there you go, you're yeah. <laughs> uh, My title is Creative Lead Designer, and uh, in, a, in a simple way, I guess my job here is to think about the future of Google and how design can help get the toys to the kids. Shout As, out Heather Leopold. Shout out Heather Leopold, <laughs> which... Uh, Tune back to that episode for... Uh... Yeah, there's a few. A few <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The purpose of this podcast is to bridge the gap between uh, entry-level creatives, people that are just coming in. Kind of like when I started this podcast, I had no idea. I didn't know you and Heather and Adam and no- Noemi, all these people. How did you first you know, find your love for creativity? How did you know you first wanted to um, work on like, the product side? Just a little bit about your journey, maybe some hardships along the way. Trying to keep it short, the full journey. I'm from Adelaide in South Australia. Nice. So if you imagine Australia as an apple <laughs> with two bites taken out of it from the top and the bottom. Okay, I'm with you. I'm from the middle down the bottom. Gotcha. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place with about 1.1 million people. I did a Bachelor of Visual Communication there. Uh, so coming out of that, I looked for work locally found a spot in a sort of five-person design team where we worked on everything from digital print, offset press, website, branding, packaging, illustration, you name it. Uh, And I got a good chance to sort of try my hand at all those things, but it's a smallish market. So I thought, where could I go to do something bigger? And being from Australia, it's kind of easier for me to get a, a work visa for England. So off I went to London, bit of freelance here and there, found a full-time gig at a big brand communications agency, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. There's like dedicated account people here. I was used to doing the whole journey from the client walking in the door to doing the quotes for the uh, anything they needed printed to delivering the final creative and so on. Yeah. So there's a lot of like technical stuff there, yeah, right? Yeah, just so I really learned every bit of the trade in some senses in that first job that I had and it was really like I was taking the photos that would go into the supermarket catalog and outlining them and masking them and then I was even doing like the coloring in competition when it was Easter time or or whatever like just doing absolutely everything and and what I found when I got to London was it was exciting that there were all these different sort of more levels to the company and and to creativity but I found the work kind of dry. It was very B2B based, like clients like Fujitsu and Hitachi and uh, IBM and so on. So I kind of thought maybe maybe graphic design isn't all it's chalked up to be. Like when you're in university, you're like, I'm going to change the world with yeah, graphic yeah, design. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. you get out and you're like, oh, actually, no, I have to do a brand identity for the accountant up the road, right. which is still an awesome, like, creative it's still exercise. An easy, easy mat, right, right, yeah. Right. Um, but when you're doing it for these more colder environments, uh, particularly B2B, I found personally to be really challenging. And that maybe depends on the client or the people that you're working with. It was a little bit more, less personal. I didn't have a personal relationship like I could do in the smaller studio where you really got to know um, the people that you're working for and with uh, to craft something that you can kind of feel as human in a way. So I had a friend who 
was at this place called Fabrica, which is a communications research center in Italy, funded by the clothing ba uh, brand Benetton. Yes. And he said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you have a look over here? We kind of do all these di different projects where you aren't really beholden to a client. You can pitch your own stuff, you'll do things for nonprofits, and you'll work on exhibitions. And sometimes you might have to do some work for Benetton, but otherwise it's a pretty awesome place to be. There's people from all around the world and they have different creative skills. So it's a, it's a great environment. So I applied, uh, managed to sort of trick my way in there, and suddenly I was there for two years, uh, during which time I worked on everything from editing films and hosting a podcast, actually, um, to doing illustration and product design. So after two years there, I thought it was probably time to go back to the real world because being a residency, I wasn't really being paid a right. bunch. Like, they, they look after, like, where you live and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was a beautiful place to be, like riding the bike, you know, through the Italian countryside oh my God, every so day jealous. on the way. Yeah, it was like a small, like Treviso is a yeah. town of about um, 100,000 people. No, it wasn't even 100,000. The center of the city had 3,000 people in it. Wow. Um, so anyway, time to get back to the real world. And I thought, hey, New York, maybe I should go and check that out. So I came here as a tourist portfolio under the under my arm and just went around and had like a chat. Like a real portfolio? Like a physical or like... <laughs> I actually <laughs> put... the suitcase? It's funny. I did have a book. I did have a printed book yeah. um, that I just took around, which was all the more funny when I ended up getting a, a gig at RGA, which is a very digital innovation-based agency. So I right. went in there with my book and they kind of look at me like, what is this strange dude doing? Um, <laughs> given, school, well, school. you know, I'd done some digital work in the past, but I hadn't, didn't have a portfolio that was emphasizing that. Um, so I ended up being there for four years, working on stuff like Nike Plus uh, yes. products, like the running and the fuel band app, um, to Tiffany & Co, L'Oreal, and switched to the branding team while I was there, during which time I worked on uh, Audible and a bunch of other projects uh, until someone at Google sort of knocked on my door and said, hey, you should come over and have nice. a look. Tell me a little bit about, you know, we've, I've talked in the podcast before, as you know, we mentioned before, Noemi, Heather, uh, Adam, um, Rob Gianpietro, um, about the hiring process a, a little bit, because I want this, you know, on the one hand, I want this to kind of talk about the mindset and what it takes to get there. But from a practical standpoint, what was Google looking for? And, and now that you've been here for a while, um, what are some of the misconceptions and what are some of the, the things that really can help you stand out? Because it's very competitive to get here. Creative Lab specifically, what we value here are people who can think and um, not only think, but have a high level of craft. Those are really the two keys that, that you need to have to be able to succeed in, in this environment. It's more about like depth than it is like... Yeah, depth. what is the thinking? Like why did you make these decisions? Mm -hmm. And having the flexibility to be able to think in different formats. Like how would you turn that website into a poster that people could understand? Right. How would you explain that in the simplest possible way to someone if you were to talk to them? You know, before the podcast, uh, I kind of talked about how I'm becoming... Uh, really into tech and, you know, the utility that can come from things like, you know, like GPay, 
that you worked on and, uh, you know, other things that have come out of the creative lab here as well as platforms like Facebook and all of that. And one of the things that we discussed was about making things understandable and digestible for people that maybe aren't in that kind of headspace that you and I are in where we're, you know, reading all these articles on TechCrunch and, you know, we're up, up to speed with it, but making sense for like the user. Like you, let's say you guys work together on an app, say like GPay or something like that. How many iterations do you do? Like, how does that whole process work? What you just described is the most exciting part of being at Google is finding ways to get all of this awesome stuff. Because it's about the people. Right? Into into a way that anyone can understand and know how to use. Like and <laughs> and that, yeah, and that they want it. You right. know, it's not just like oh, I understand it and. I can kind of use it. It's like it's something you it's something you want. Right. It's like, oh wow, that is awesome. I want to use it. It has a real value to me personally. Mm-hmm. It's going to help me do something. Um, so with a specific product, there's no there's probably no one way that we would go about a process because you might be doing a brand or you might be trying to communicate a specific feature. Um, but in the case of something like Google Pay. Uh, with that process, we were thinking about, hey, it's interesting that there's like seven to eight different ways you can pay for things with Google. Isn't that kind of strange that we talk about it in each of those different ways slightly differently? It's called something different. Right. This is kind of, and it's, it's somewhat self-evident once you put them all on a page together and it's like, oh, actually this isn't really easy for users to understand the connection between the two. a lot of two. semantics and people that don't, aren't necessarily familiar with those semantics, right? Yeah, so you just, it's, it's, really, it's really just think human. Like, pretend you are, I do this all the time, like what would my mom think about this? Would she understand the connection between these things? Yeah. Would she understand what this is trying to tell me or get me to do or sure. would she understand the value? So with Google Pay, it was a simple process of like, here's all the places where we can pay for things right now this is the way that we're talking about them in all of, all of those places. But what if it was like this? And the after is just showing it being spoken about in the same way. Right. And that's where Google Pay last year, that's, that's sort of how that came about was if we have one name to call any way you can pay for things with Google, with your Google account, or we call it Google Pay. Right. So we should write that everywhere and talk about it in the same way. When I first started this podcast, I always tried to pretend that I had like all the answers and that I was like an equal, but now I'm actually trying to see the holes or the areas in my, in my understanding of things where, where I don't understand. And one of the things that I really want to know about is the interaction between engineers and designers and marketers. Because my friend Dion just made a, um, the Giving Tuesday. He um, worked with the team on that. And I was saying, you know, my friend, he led this project. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a very, you can't really say that because it's like the engineers are the people who facilitate this stuff. It's a group effort. But how does that work? So if, if you come here, like let's say, just you know, hypothetically speaking, I get a job here, I have like a branding background, I have an understanding of graphic design, right? That's very different than somebody who is an engineer. So how does that process work? A lot of the time it's for designers and in Creative Lab, we're just very humble and that we acknowledge that we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And we remind people of that frequently. Yeah, the um, humility to... Yeah, because we are just... Questions. Yeah, right. definitely, because we are just trying to understand what the thing is that has been made. So it comes from, you ask a lot of questions, and you actually do pick up and learn a lot about the engineering process just by asking those questions. And that's how a lot of the projects get started and f- get started and finished, right. is just by reaching out and saying, hey, 
saw you were working on this really cool thing. What does that mean? Like, would we be able to do this with that? Right. And just starting that conversation because quite often they are thinking about their product in a specific way that you haven't thought about. And the way that you might have been thinking about that product, they haven't been thinking about. And so it can actually be like more more heads are better than one yeah. in that sense. And I think the unique value that sometimes it comes having the marketing background or as a designer where you're thinking about interfaces that engineers aren't thinking about is that we kind of understand that touch point where the magic of the engineering touches people and, and that where they kind like of, right. what's in between them is that interface and design and marketing like that's kind of where we are yeah. so we're trying to translate that real technical stuff because these are people who you know they they understand how to so it's like MIT or yeah like, I yeah, mean right. I can just throw out a bunch of acronyms that I don't even understand you know like full stack cloud platforms you know yeah. whatever like I don't understand those things yeah but if they can tell me what that thing is actually doing we can help figure out the easiest way for users to interact with that to sort of create something of value i've found in my career my you know small career thus far uh that whenever i got to a place that was a considered a dream i wasn't necessarily surprised because i was working as as hard as i possibly could towards that goal and i feel like a lot of young creatives they kind of just think like one day google's just gonna call you and i'm realizing now that it's more about the hours logged reading books as opposed to scrolling through Instagram or, you know, going to a museum instead of going to a bar. Um, how did you get yourself into that mindset where, number one, you knew what you wanted to do, and then number two, a company like Google would want to hire you, hire you in the first place? So I think the, the big thing that no one really talks about is not everyone really knows what they want to do all of the time, right. self-included. And I think I didn't really want to commit myself to saying, hey, I do one thing. For, for a long time. And even even now, I'm not sure I really do that. And that's probably... I don't think you want to do that as a creative, right? You're kind of like pigeonholing yourself. That's like, seems counterintuitive. I don't know. Well, it's You're a... expert. Yeah. Here's the, here's, <laughs> the, here's the catch. Is that you want to be the best person in the room at something. Because if you're kind of okay at everything... You're not you're the just okay. You're just okay. You're not the person that I'm going to call when I need the logo mm-hmm. or when I need a, a film made because you're only okay at it. So I guess here's, here's one way that I like to think about what makes a, a solid creative uh, in any environment for, for any particular field is that they are T-shaped. That's capital T yes. um, in the sense that they have a wide set of knowledge and capability. So that's the that top bar of the T. So that means like, you can do a little bit of, you have an understanding of code or motion or icon design or illustration. Right. But you have a deep skill set in something that you are, you're going to say, like, this is what I do the best. This is why you hire me. Right. So that, and that's that deep stem of the yeah. T. So T-shaped people are great because they have a knowledge of how to use different skill sets. So they know... I love that. It's I like, can do a I little bit of, you know, like, oh, I can do a little bit of motion, right. but I know that I've where my limits are, and now I need an expert, so let's get someone else in. Right. That one go-to thing, Heather talked about that same thing, like, that. what's the one thing I can count on you for? Exactly. I, like I don't have that, though. But maybe I do. I don't know. I'm, I'm naturally good at photography, but I'm, I don't feel like I am a scuba diver, if you will, in this analogy. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to yeah. be, like, good, good. Well... It can also change over time. It doesn't have to be fixed, and you don't have to always say that that's your one thing. Mm-hmm. 
It is useful though when you're talking to prospective employers or clients that you that you can tell them, "Hey, this is what I do." And that way you you're at least hedging on one thing that you want to be known for. Uh, that could even be if it's in your case like there's something that you're not quite sure your is your is your full strength, right. but it's something you want to be strong at, you could still direct yourself in that in that way because so, uh, the thing is, like, the more you do it, the better you get. Right. And uh, another tip for portfolios in general is don't put in stuff that you don't want to be doing. Yeah. Like, your portfolio should reflect what you have done, but it should also be showing what you want to do more of. For sure. Part two was, oh, how, did, oh, how do you get yourself in a position? To get into Google? Yeah. So I think the reason I, I got the phone call was from Creative Lab particularly was that they saw a variety of work in that I'd done like dif- different sorts of projects but the common thread which I think I touched on earlier was ideas and craft and those are the things that I'm most excited by um, and something we also talked about earlier was like how do you try and position yourself should you be specializing how can you be so open and flexible and doing a little bit of everything and I'm someone who didn't want to specialize. It can be a grind, but if you don't specialize and you have a wide sort of skill set and you can demonstrate that, and in each of those things that you've done, you can still show that it's brought a level of value, it's going to work in your advantage. And that's why I think Creative Lab sort of chose me, Mm -hmm. is because I wasn't just a one-trick pony. Because I'd done a variety of things that I was curious about, how does something work when it's a physical product? How does that work when it's a film? What happens when I have to do a set of iconography? What happens when I have to do a logo or a brand or a ringtone? Like, those are the sorts of things that, in this place, are perfect. Right. So, Creative Lab, my, my sort of profile, is, a, is an awesome fit. Were Whereas, you kind of, like, going towards that, though? Were you doing, like, this is Google-esque work, hopefully this will get me there, or no? Were you just in your work? No, not, not, not even. Uh, That's I th- so cool, I love that. Yeah, no, I th- like, honestly, the ideas are, are what brought, sort of excited me about design, for, even from way back in university. I was like, well, this is really, like, a way to communicate ideas through a visual medium. Mm-hmm. And I think the amazing thing about Creative Lab is that I'm not just communicating something using graphic design now, I'm able to sort of sell ideas to become something through design. Get get the toys to the kids. Get the toys to the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. You guys are kind of like going into uncharted territory and sometimes it's something that's kind of like Gboard that's kind of like right there but just needs the right engineers to execute it. And then other times it's stuff that can kind of fundamentally change the world. How do, how do you guys come up with those ideas and who makes those calls? A lot of the time our projects come from actually looking at what the company's goals are for the next year, for example. Yeah. And a lot of the time... Like North Star kind of thing? Yeah, like how can like this product be more helpful? Or how can Google do more for people in this sort of way? Yeah. And that gives us a, a place to start. So then we sort of start squirreling away and like looking into it. Like what do we do existing in that space? Like, what are the opportunities there? What are the what are people actually needing in the real world? Where are the opportunities to sort of match them? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's speaking very broadly. Often, the way that we will discover projects is by talking to people. It's kind of back to like having good relationships with 
sort of different product teams across the company is mm -hmm. just being able to have those feelers out there and be like, hey, these guys are doing something interesting over here or this team actually doesn't have much help. Like we've done a number of projects with Google Translate because turns out Google Translate team is actually kind of small. Mm -hmm. So for them to have like a team of seven creatives to jump on and, and sprint with them on something for a couple of weeks nice. can really help them reimagine how they're completely looking at what they're doing. How projects come into Creative Lab, sometimes it is from like company key objectives and that'll come down through our boss. And then other times it'll be from us just having our ears open and seeing like, hey, something's happening in the world right now where Google could do better. Mm -hmm. And then other times there is some, like someone will just be sitting there and being like, why is this so hard? Why is why does this suck so much? Right. In something that we've already made. Yeah. And where in, is the friction in the experience? Right? Exactly. Yeah. In all those cases, what we'll walk we'll walk away and do is really figure out like what is the problem, what is the opportunity, and how it might be solved. And we'll try and do that in a very sh short presentation to begin with, mm -hmm. just to try and get the top view, sort of like jump to the end, like what would this look like? How could it work? In his in his shorter time as possible then hopefully we can get that through our bosses and then talk to the product teams um, that's one way other times we might actually work directly with a product team that has asked us for help and we can see that there's an actionable sort of thing and deliverable that we can make that will help them a bunch that's awesome I love that one of the things that I try and get across when I'm going and talking at colleges or speaking with young, young students I kind of have a um, I went to Brooklyn College last year. I haven't stopped thinking about that. I listen back to it. I think about like what I would say. I don't want to be like a motivational speaker, but I definitely want to um, kind of help to change the mindset of, of a lot of young students because um, there's kind of this hyper-focus on motivation, but then I see very little in way of execution. And people will say to me things like, well, how do I start a podcast? I'm like, well, you go to Google and then you type in, by the way, that's not a, no pun intended here. But you go to Google and you type in, how do I start a podcast? You're not going to type in, how do I start a podcast? And you go there, it's going to be like, oh, turns out nothing's here. Better luck next time. Like, that's never going to happen. It's out there. All the information is out there. Whether you want to start a podcast, whether you want to be a UX developer, whatever it is you want to do. But people will just, they love the excuses. They love being in that mode. And I was in that mode too. I don't want this to sound like I'm preaching. But I was in that mode too. And I, I've learned over time and speaking with people that it's just a manifestation of the ego, kind of like your mind, your own mind, like it's all within your own head and it's trying to protect you from getting hurt. But if you could just override that and learn it, it's out there. I know people that are so talented, but constantly stand in their own way or come up with excuses as to why they don't do it. And it drives me insane. And I know that I'm hyper motivated. But there's just, to me, it just feels like wasted potential. And I feel like part of it is like society. You know what I mean? So where do you kind of line up with all this stuff? And um, for young creators that are having a hard time kind of conquering their fears and chasing their dreams, how do you get over that? Ultimately, I think it comes down to the drive that you mentioned that you have, which is amazing because like this podcast is a testament to that. Thank you. Be because it really is like, you are the only limit to a bunch of stuff in, a, in your creative career. Sure. And it's not easy. I think that at the end of the day, it's not easy to have the perfect portfolio, to have all those projects, to feel confident about 
sending your your book to a, a big company that you wanted to work for or a small studio or whatever that happens to be at the end of the day it just means you have to put in the hard yards like that's the only way you're going to get it exactly um so i'm a big believer in people who are self-driven because they are the ones who are going to figure it out and learn how to do it you're not going to wait for someone to hand it to you on a platter mm-hmm. uh a lot of my portfolio, like what I like in portfolios and, and I hope is reflective in, in the stuff that I've done and what I hope others have seen in that is that I still like to sort of do projects on the side to improve my skills, to try something new, to sort of push myself conceptually or, or whatever it happens to be to sort of get to a new place. So when people have potential but they're kind of sitting on it and they're not really showing that to anyone. Mm-hmm. No one's going to no know what's there. Find you, right. um, and it's the same thing if you're, if you do have a skill set, but you're not, it's not in your book right now. One of the things that I used to do with self-initiated projects was to use them. One as a tool to teach myself something new, but two was also to show others that I could do it. So for example, I wanted to get better at illustration because I, th- I thought, oh, I'm pretty sucky at it. So I made myself a little pr- conceptual framework of like illustrating the titles of spam emails. <laughs> and so... That's so creative, I love that. So, yeah, and it was... I, I was like over a point of a week when I was on holidays once, I sort of just drew one thing every day. At the end of the, the week, I scanned them, put them on my website, and it became something that people could look at and be like, oh... He's done illustration, but he also does graphic design, but he also does this. And if you keep doing these sorts of projects, you start to build up sort of a way for others to see what you're capable of. Right. Which hopefully should translate into opportunities and also into the self-confidence for you to be able to approach whoever you want to about doing a work with them or for them and so on. Yeah, definitely. The biggest thing I've learned, this is episode like, 110 or something like some crazy shit like that yeah and of all of that the biggest thing I've taken out of this is never underestimate the power of humility and nuanced conversation I remember like when I'm you know when I came in here today it's a little bit easier but like when you know when I met Heather when when I met uh, Noemi it's there's there's a little bit of an inferiority complex but being truthful and being able to have long, nuanced conversations and be patient about getting, like, the no's. If you're willing to have those conversations and just be honest about your intentions, in today's day and age, I feel like that's your leverage. There's a misconception. People think that it's like, I have to go to Google and I have to be, like, on my A-game. I have to wear the right suit. But so many people could benefit just from being like, hey, I don't want to work here. I just want to come here and figure out, like, what it would take. And for me, it's so apparently clear now what I need to do. But that comes from the humility of not coming in here with the right hooks and being like, can I get an internship? Can I get this? You can get so much further just from like not wanting and be willing to communicate. Did you have anyone that kind of helped you in your career in that way that you spoke to that maybe took a chance on you that you were like, I have no business talking to this person or or did you go to certain companies and like, how did you figure out how to level up? There was a really funny quote someone talked to me about when I moved to London and it was give me a job or give me a restraining order yeah uh because there are there are many many fish in the sea it's it's, it can be hard sometimes to get the attention of specific creatives or agencies or studios or companies 
So for me, what has worked best is persistence. Like if you know that you really want to get in to a certain place, mm-hmm. don't just send one email and then give up. Like yeah. turn up in person, give them something they can hold on to, leave a, leave a note, like circle back. Like right. I, I, when I moved to, this is pre, not pre-internet by any means, but when I moved to London, for example, and I've told this story a bunch of times, so everyone's pretty sick of hearing it. Uh, when I moved to London, I wanted to work. I'd seen this guy from Mother, the the yeah. agency there in London. Uh, I'd Very seen him. Polite. I'd seen him talk at. Uh, his name was Simon Waterfall, and what a great name. Yeah, amazing Objectively, name. Objectively, that could be a fake last name. He I'm was going to go on a limb here. So he anyway, this guy <laughs> like I was at a design conference in Melbourne, and when I was a student in 2004, and this guy got on a stage and he melted my mind, and I was like well, I have to go work at that agency. Had never heard of Mother before, you know. Yeah. Go over to London, and I'm like, I have to get in the door there. So my approach was... A very difficult thing to do. It's one of the hardest agencies oh, in the world to get into. And this is from some kid from Adelaide who's only been working for like two and a half years. Very small, limited Did portfolio. Did uh, I mean, in hindsight, of course, I don't like any... <laughs> I don't like any of the work that I did last year. What are you talking about? Um... But what I knew was that I had to get in there no matter what. Like, that was that was one of the things. It was one of my must-have. Like, I, I had applied to a bunch of places and would go around in person and hand my book and then follow up with emails. But I wasn't like... The, with Mother, I was like, I need to know whether I can work there. Like, this is something I have to do. Right. Let me be the coffee guy kind of approach. Like, just anything. I just was like, I need a response. Because you know a lot of places, you'll contact them and you won't hear anything and all that sort of stuff. I know what it's like. And I'm, I'm the restraining order guy. And, and there's, <laughs> yeah, I'm the restraining order guy. Like, and there's a lot of good reasons why, whatever, the emails fall off the map and HR right. loses it or whatever, or the wrong person sees it and so on, wrong timing, etc., etc. But in this case with Mother, I was like, I have to get in. So I went out and I bought about 12 or so, uh, what do we call it? Like children's dolls, like plastic dolls, babies. <laughs> and I, I bought a like white paper sort of swaddle and I would wrap them up and I put a little note on them as an adoption notice and said, <laughs> I'm looking for my mother. And I wrote like a little, like just my contact details on the back. And so the first time I went in to hand in my portfolio, I gave them a baby and my, my sort of printed portfolio, like the little book. And then for twice a week, for the next six weeks, I sent them a baby. And then eventually I got a call like, hey, Elliot, I've got like a bunch of babies sitting on my desk. You better come in for an interview. And I was like, cool. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And so, I mean, t- to finish that story, I ended up, of course, I, I got in there and had the interview. And, and I walked out realizing that I didn't want to work there. But I wouldn't have known that if I didn't get in the door. Like, And it, for me, it's just an example of how persistence can pay off. Um, because it's going to give you the answers that you need. For sure. There's something to be said for like staying with it and being, uh, not being so transactional about things. It's another huge thing that I'm pushing here. But at the same time, though, it's really important to realize like what you don't want to. So when it feels right, like when I met Heather, I was like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm going to work for this girl one day. Like, uh, like I will work for her one day at Google Creative Lab. It's going to be great. And I knew it just like intuitively it felt right. And then there have been other times where I've walked into agency, like running out of the agency. And I was like severely disappointed. 
But whatever it is, if it feels good, lean into it. If it feels wrong, like go away from it. And just kind of seek out that positivity and that humility because there's a lot of um, posturing and a lot of bullshit. And, and, and if, you, if you don't trust your own intuition, the direction that you go. Like I see a lot of people, though, like they'll be so obsessed with working at this one person at the detriment to themselves. I would want to be like, you know, I want to be mentored by this person at this agency. And it was incredibly limiting. It was actually, it was when I found Google Creative Lab was when I actually like left that. There was like this kind of like tight knit circle and I wanted so badly to belong that it was actually a disservice to myself. And I feel like when you're looking for those mentors and those people to, to get closer to, you'll know when it's right. And if you ever feel like you're sacrificing, that's, you know, time to go. No one ever talks about this shit, but I feel like there's somebody out there right now who like needs to hear it. Who's like, <laughs> like if they ignore you for six months, you should probably just like try and go work somewhere else. With mother, for example, yeah. like that was, I mean, I, I don't know if it goes as far as obsession. Right. It was more just, I need to, I need to know if this is for me. Yes. I need to get in. I need to have that question answered. I need to know more. And once I know enough, then I can, I can walk away. Yeah. But in general, I think to, to your point, like there's so much you can learn from so many different people. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, no, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, mm-hmm. but I do think that it's dangerous to sort of idolize anyone too much. Because yeah. I don't think there is anyone who's got all the answers, who yeah. has the best way of doing things. And that you'll, you're able to learn a lot from everyone, including those who are more senior or more junior than you. Positivity is is key. Uh, I think coupled with drive, yes. like you have to have, yes, you have to you have to be you have to have you have to be hungry for it, um, and Not optimistic. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and part of the optimism comes from if you're putting in the hard yards, if you've got that ambition, you and you're and you're putting the the work towards it, and you've got something to show for it, you kind of realize that actually more doors open up. So there's a lot to be. There's, there's a lot more opportunity uh, if, you're, if you're working hard and you're hungry to do something. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, where can people who are interested in, we'll switch it up a little bit today, a little bit outside social media and everything like that, um, for people that are interested in Google Creative Lab, um, outside of the other Google Creative Lab podcast that we've done on Meet the Creatives, uh, where can people learn more about that um, and where might be a good place if you're thinking about applying or uh, a good person to talk to? Creative Lab has done an excellent job of representing themselves on the web. A little bit sarcastic there because we only have one website, which is about the Creative Lab 5 program. But that's actually a great place for you to go and learn. Uh, You can see a bunch of stuff that Creative Lab has done in the past. And you can apply for the 5 program, which is sort of our annual. It's it's a residency of sorts for young creatives. When is this? Uh, You can apply at any time. Um, Yeah. I mean... Time-wise, there's no there's no I- ideal time. I would say uh, just keep an eye out because uh, it's a it'll the submissions are open for about three months every year. Um, but that's also a way you can figure out how to contact Creative Lab. Thank you so much for doing this, man. You're awesome. You're welcome. It's been awesome to talk to you. Thanks, bro. Thanks for checking out this episode of Meet the Creatives. If you enjoyed it, uh, make sure you add me on Instagram, Meet the Creatives NY, and let me know your thoughts. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes. All right. Have a wonderful day. Peace.